0: Gracious God, we are um, truly thankful that you welcome us here and that this is not just some empty, uh, repetitive practice, but that there is so much value, worth, and importance to the people of God, the church, the family, brothers and sisters gathering together to give glory to the name of Jesus. We do not take that lightly this morning, even at this very moment. And God, it is our deepest desire to make your son, his name, and everything about him to be seen and to be understood as, as precious as it really is. And we just pray that you would be pleased in all that we do today. God, help us to even see this act of opening up your scriptures, diving into and, and seeking out what it is that you have for us, what you want to say to us, and how that can transform our lives and for the better, and how we could breathe joy into us. And not even joking, Lord, I pray that all of us would be a 10 because of what we've experienced in communicating with our God and feeling your presence here. Um, Because there's no place that we'd rather be than in your presence and with you. So we take delight in you, and Lord, for those of us who are struggling for that, are far away from it, it seems, won't you just meet us, just like our brother Jason prayed earlier, meet us where we are, and won't you bring us closer to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been going through the series in Hosea, and um, today is the second to last week. So we'll finish up the book of Hosea in the end of August, and then September, you know, we'll have the new rush, the students will be back, Um, we'll have lots of new people, as Pastor Bill mentioned, and we'll be kicking off a new series. But, um... I am really excited to be able to go through chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, I uh, want not you open up to Hosea 8. Uh, we're going to read the entire chapter, actually. And if you don't have your Bibles, you can also read along with me on the screen. So I'll give you a minute if you need to pull it out. Uh, it's Hosea 8. And starting from verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you, but Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it, it is not God. The cap of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flour. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up already there among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and shall devour her strongholds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when it comes to Prophetical, or even poetical, even a mixture of the two, language, Um, you'll notice, and we even talked about this earlier in the beginning of our series, how uh, Hosea, like scholars are kind of at a loss as to like where he's going. There isn't this clear-cut progression of thought but kind of bounces around a lot, and even in chapter 8. And so I want to kind of reorganize what we just read because I know it can be a little bit difficult to follow. Um, But as simplistic as I can put it, chapter 8, he talks a lot about language concerning idolatry, right? So Hosea talked about Israel setting up kings and princes uh, who are not from God. He talks about creating idols. Uh, They sought out help from foreign nations. He mentioned Assyria instead of seeking God, Uh, sinning against God through their sacrifices. And all in all, it's just that they are rebelling against God's word and seeking after what they ought to find in God in other things. And so it's a mess. Um, And instead of covering every single verse in this chapter, what I want to do is actually narrow down in on verses 11 and 13 in particular. And this is one small section of Hosea in chapter 8, 11 through 13, in which this is the best way that I've I've read or or heard it. One biblical scholar calls it distortions of orthodoxy. Distortions of orthodoxy. In other words, distorting um, the correct way to abide by God's word. Distorting obedience, distorting Uh, how we ought to live. And so that's kind of like the tagline that I want to use for these 15, 20 minutes. Distortion of orthodoxy. So what does that mean? So we'll go to verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the 10,000s, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Now when you read verse 11 right here, uh, does anything like kind of jump out at you in terms of being out of place or, I don't know, like wrong. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I look at it, um, it says they have multiplied altars for sinnings, but what are altars for? Not for sinning, right? Is it not the complete opposite? Altars were a place where you brought your sacrificial offerings, where you, in fact, didn't disobey, but in fact obeyed God, where you offered up uh, your sacrifices, where you renewed Covenant with God, where you renewed a broken relationship with God. It's worship. But the prophet says that Ephraim has multiplied uh, altars for sinning. They have become to him altars for sinning. And what's going on here is actually a direct transgression of the law that was given to Israel through Moses. And you don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read it for you in Deuteronomy 12. Um, So pay attention. Um, Just listen carefully. This is, again, through Moses um, in Deuteronomy. You shall not worship the Lord your God. Sorry, wrong verse. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the, the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Now pay attention right here. Take care, this is verse 13, Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in your tribes. There, and only there, you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do that all I am commanding you. So, what I just read in Deuteronomy 12 is that God says, you can't just put altars all over the place as you please and start doing whatever you want, but God is going to choose those places And so what's happening is that Israel is actually mimicking all the foreign nations, the pagan gods, where they would, you know, win a victory or have something significant to a place, just build up an altar, and it wasn't ordained by God's choice. And even further, again, the distortion of orthodoxy, altars are meant for good, they're turning into something bad. Even further, verse 13, ask for my sacrificial offerings. They sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now, if you were to read through Leviticus, there's all these rules and laws on, around how offerings should go, how sacrifices should go. The high priest will come and do this. They will be in this stat, uh, status with, uh, with cleanliness laws. They will cut the animal in this way. The blood will drip out. They'll sprinkle blood on this side of the altar, place it in this way, burn it in this way, eat it in this way. And so there are lots of rules around how sacrifices will be made. And what historians or biblical scholars say is that Well, you know, a sacrifice would happen and and they would actually eat it. That was part of the rules. But slowly over time, it just started getting looser and looser, a little bit further away from the way that God intended, up to the point in which Hosea is referring that these sacrifices turn into like these parties of drunkenness and debauchery in which they were feasting on these sacrifices that they offered to God, but rather it just became like the sin party in a sense. And so Hosea calls that, or the Lord calls it out saying, These are sacrificial offerings. They sacrifice and they eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. It's displeasing to him. It's a distortion of the right way. Now, I imagine how displeasing this could be to God because it's not simply um, like a rule and they broke it. Like God said, thou shall not lie, and somebody went and lied. But I feel at least it's a little bit of a step further because we're taking something that, or they were taking something that was meant to be pleasing to God something that was an act of worship and then further turning it into something that was sinful now that was them that's you know thousands of years ago but what does that mean for us how does that affect us as Americans in in 2014 I think it's actually precisely the same right um As I was preparing the sermon, I was typing up all these uh, ways that we distort orthodoxy. Things that are meant to be worshipful that we easily, when we lose focus, it ends up turning sinful, right? And then, actually, dragged my cursor, highlighted it, and deleted it all. Um, Because I don't want that to be what we take home today. And if you do continue to follow the self-examination practice that Pastor Bill is calling us to do, you can figure that out very easily on your own. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just going to give you one example, just to give you get your mind rolling, and you can figure this out on yourself. But a distortion of orthodoxy that I think that we all commit, 100%, I think, is I'll, I'll take the, the act of worship in, through Christian community, right? So what's supposed to happen at church? One, uh, it's a place where we share love, right? We all you know, should love each other and share in it. Um, to, it's a place where we give of ourselves, we pour out ourselves, investing in others, building relationships and friendships, uh, a place of sacrifice where we, we lower our own needs and bless the others you know, regardless of who they are. But what happens? Instead of it being that place of love, it very easily becomes a place of gossip or judgment or that person I don't like. Instead of being that place of giving, we complain that nobody's giving to me Instead of being like, what can I do for the church? It's like, why isn't the church fe- feeding my needs? How come I'm always the uncomfortable one? No one's saying hi to me. Instead of, what can I do to bless others? And instead of sacrificing to others, no matter who they are, it's we pick and choose who we love the most, who's easy to talk to, who gave to us so that we can give back, and we pick and choose, right? This is what I mean. And I, Again, I had a list of them, but you can figure that out on your own. But this is what I mean by we also can take something that's meant to be worshipful, and if we're not fully paying attention, we lose sight and it eventually gets distorted. But again, I don't actually want that to be what you guys all go home with. Like Pastor Bill just mentioned, we could easily just bring up something that makes you feel guilty and like hope that it changes your life, but it won't. If I can have your attention for these 15, 20 minutes, and especially right now, I hope that what we just read in this text and even this me like kind of picking it apart and talking about this whole distortion, the number one thing would be that we leave here and even at this moment are overwhelmed with this feeling of desperate need for a savior. That when you recognize that sin doesn't just happen about like do not lie and then we lied, but even in the worshipful things that we take it to that extent that it wouldn't be that you'd go home with guilt, but that you go home with this overwhelming sense of how desperately you need someone to intervene and pull you out of the depth and that pit that you're in. In particular, to Hosea, and I love Hosea because of the illustration of marriage, that how desperately, as you, as someone who has been unfaithful to your covenant marriage like vows, how badly you need someone, a faithful spouse. How badly you need someone who was perfect and faithful to the end. You may have noticed, maybe not, you may have, that everyone, when they think of Hosea, they think of Gomer and Hosea, right? Everyone says that. Oh, do you know anything about the book of Hosea? Oh, isn't it about that prophet who had the prostitute wife? Yeah, it is. But you may have also noticed that we haven't talked about Gomer a single time other than the time that we introduced the series off, when the prophet Hosea came. Remember, we invited him, flew him out from, you know, the Middle East. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I just messed myself up we haven't talked about Gomer a single time since then and in particular if you read through the book Hosea doesn't talk about her either he barely does she comes up a couple times in the first few chapters and then she's gone The reason that we haven't been talking about Gomer and Hosea and their whole marriage issue isn't because we forgot or isn't because we're rotating as a preaching team. It's not because we're taking chunks and we haven't gone verse by verse. It's because Hosea isn't isn't primarily about Hosea and Gomer. Hosea, like the rest of the Bible, is about God and his people. Hosea is this beautiful picture and, and the imagery, again, of marriage, of God, of Yahweh and His marital covenant bond with Israel. And yet how much Israel has transgressed and broken and has been an adulterer, broken that, that, those vows, the covenant that they made. And just like a husband or a wife goes and cheats on their wife or their husband and finds affection in someone else who isn't that person that's wearing those rings, So Israel has transgressed that covenant, that bond with God. So what I want us to leave us with, and again, I'm repeating myself, is how much you need a faithful spouse in this covenant that you have with God and how you are able to freely have all of that and more than you even recognize in Christ Jesus. How we are able to have that type of spouse who will be faithful to every end, to every extent, even to death, even to giving up his own life on the cross, to people who have been horribly unfaithful. You guys know how much I love Revelation, and I never stop talking about it, because I love it, and I want us to actually read a snippet of it, and this is the end, well near the end of the book, which is at the end of the Bible, which is about the end times, And this is the final marriage scene between Christ and his church. And and let's, let's, see, I get so excited. (laughs) Let's like dig into this, you know what I'm saying? Like, Revelation is so awesome. Okay, verse 6 from chapter 19, if you need to look it up on your own Bible. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Now, this is John speaking. He's taken up into a vision and instead of just glossing over what we just read right there, I want us to stop and even pay attention to that, even though that's not the bulk of what I want to talk about. So we just hear, oh, there's a loud voice. But, but look at the way that he's talking or describing it. A great multitude, like the roar of waters and mighty peals of thunder. How many of you have been in a thunderstorm where it's like, it's like shocking to you, right? Where it feels like your windows are going to break? Like imagine, so we think that like, you know, the Super Bowl is loud or, like, World Cup is loud. Imagine peals of thunder and, like, roar of crashing waves of a great multitude, okay? That's the sound. And here's what they say. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord in the loudest sound that you've ever heard. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. So this triumphant sound in the beginning of this marriage between the Christ and his church. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be many, many generations of Christ followers who are invited to this marriage supper. And I hope that it's 100% of us in this room. But not a single person there would have earned their invitation. Every person will have formerly been an adulterer but who has the most gracious and loving spouse who welcomes them to that wedding. You know, even this past weekend at Pastor Hojin and Julie's wedding, like, and I'm sure a lot of you have been in many other weddings this summer and people are always crying at weddings, right? Right? And I always think about, why, why are people crying at weddings? Like, you know, it's like, it's really an emotional time, right? There's like all these decorations, there's like sometimes like, you know, there's like nice music in the background. Um, if you're a friend, if you're like really close friends with the bride, she comes out and she has a beautiful dress and, uh, you know, just looks amazing and, you know, like everyone's dressed nicely and it's just an emotional time. Really, the, the, the most important part of the, of the wedding isn't the food after or even the dancing. It's when the two people come before God and come before the people who they want to be a witness to this promise. It's not just who your friends are. It's people who you want to witness you and say, I saw that person make a covenant vow before God and before these friends. And the most important part is when they make that promise. They say, till death do us part. Now you guys hear all the time how I am weird and I have these weird moments when I'm preparing sermons and I'm in front of my computer I'm like oh like you know like dying inside but like also feeling like so much joy and as I was preparing this I was thinking about this image and there's nothing in the bible it's just me kind of creating it up and I mentioned this upstairs to the children's ministry, but it's kind of weird for me to think of walking down the aisle, because it's like weird as a guy, like, it's like a girl's thing, right? But guys, like, just put that weirdness away, because Christ is the groom, the bridegroom, and the church is the bride, so we're going to be doing that too. And just imagine that. Like, I think about just putting some imagery to this, to what's going on here, and thinking of Jesus, who's at the altar, beckoning and inviting his church to come. He's spotless. He's full of grace. And I just think about like looking down and being at the door or like seeing him at the end of the aisle with all of my stains. And yet scripture says that we will be clothed in robes of white, like white as snow. And I don't think it takes like you need to be married in order to understand how horrible adultery is. I love how powerful, and I love how God created marriage, and I love how at Revelation it talks about Christ marrying the church. Because in a human marriage... We cry even though it's just two people who love each other, right? Just two people who are in a good relationship. What about when it's the unfaithful, uh, adulterous, even whoring, like whoredom spouse that is at the end and yet it's Christ who is perfect and welcoming you to come even in your tattered stains, And yet, we are clothed because of the faithfulness of the bridegroom, pure as snow, white robes. And he just waits at the end saying, hey, come here to this beautiful marriage that will be renewed in completeness. So what I want to do today is highlight the fact of how tattered and and stained we truly are. That you and I cannot just, we don't just sin. We can even take worship and make it sinful too. Prayer is another example. How often do we just pray, dear God, give me this, give me this, give me this, and completely forget the relational, loving communication part. The list goes on and on. And again, do your self-examination to finish figure that out on your own. But even in that state, what we needed so desperately, what Israel needed, and what we have in Christ is that covenant bridegroom, spouse who is faithful to the end, to the point of taking that broken, unfaithful, adulterous—you uh, know—church and making her his beautiful bride. And at the end of days, we can look forward to this when you actually see him. And where you are not considered that broken, sinful person anymore, but just like in real life when we see a glowing bride, the church will be in that state even greater. Man, if we cry at human weddings, I'm like, "Woo! Like, what's gonna happen? I don't even know. So my hope, church, is that today, at this moment, that even some harsh language of like prophetical language from Hosea about how much we have sinned it just leads you to just yearning for and desperate desire for needing someone like Jesus and whether it would be the first time in your life or your 100th or 1000th time let's leave this place falling in love with him again renewing your vow of faithfulness to him let's renew that marriage vow Let's pray and say that we want to be faithful to you as you have been faithful to us. Let's come back. Let's turn in repentance and come back to a spouse who graciously welcomes us. Let's pray together. God, we want to fall in love with Jesus in a way that we've never, ever fallen in love before. We want everything that we quote-unquote love on this earth, that, that feeling to look like absolutely nothing compared to the love that we have for him. We pray even that it will be magnified far above and beyond the love that we have for our friends and family and even our spouses. We want our love for your son to compare, to have no comparison to have no comparison. And God, we thank you for the words of your prophet Hosea. We thank you that you called him to live a difficult life, to be an example, and to bring a word, a needed word to Israel, but also to us thousands of years later to your church My hope is, Lord, yes, that we would recognize the sin aspect, the important words of judgment, that we would be awakened from um, our different sins and even our distortions of worship and the ways that you call us to live. But, Lord, my prayer, and I hope it is in line with what you want, is for everyone to, at this moment and as we go, to be awakened to that sin but immediately after that, to lead them to wanting your son so much, desiring him so much, loving him so much, thanking him for being so faithful, although we have been the unfaithful bride. And Jesus, we pray until that awesome day that you come again and when we see you, that you would continue to be making your church, your bride, pure, white as snow. You'd be sanctifying us, making us holy, making us into the bride that you want us to be. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open it up and read it together. And we thank you that you have shown us so, so much that would lead us to love you so, so much. God, if there's anything that I care about for these people, for this church, is that we would love you deeper, that our affections would be in you and you alone, and that they would be protected there that the world and nothing else would steal our affections away into empty things and worldly things, but that they would be locked away and found alone in our Savior. Would our adoration, would our praise, our affections, our love, our longings, our hunger, our thirst, everything of us be placed in Christ. So Holy Spirit, won't you lead us and help us to be shaped in that way? Grow us. Even use these self-examinations, Lord, to point us back to you. And as we go this morning or this afternoon, I pray that we would just want to love you more because how faithful you've been. And it is our declaration, Lord, that we love you, Jesus. We want to love you, again, more than our own family, more than anything. Thank you for being present with us here. Thank you that you dwell in our midst and even inside of us. Thank you you're present here, ministering to each and every one of us. And thank you that you never leave and you never will. And in your faithfulness, Lord, we look upon that pure and perfect example and I ask that you would help us to, re- to reciprocate the same way that we would never leave you. God, we ask that you would hasten the day of your coming because we want to see you so soon. We want to be a part of that wedding ceremony so soon. And we just ask that you would keep us faithful until it comes. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.